The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am honored to welcome my guest back, Dr. Ailey Cohen. She is a board-certified rheumatologist, an integrative medicine and environmental health expert based in Princeton, New Jersey. She has collaborated with the Environmental Working Group, Cancer Schmancer, and other disease prevention organizations. She is the creator of the smarthuman.com, where she shares environmental health, disease prevention, and wellness information with the public. She lectures nationally on environmental health topics for elementary and high schools, colleges and universities, medical schools, and physician training programs. She's a regular expert on television, print, and podcasts nationwide. Dr. Cohen is working to educate and empower the next generation to make safer, smarter lifestyle choices through the creation of environmental health and prevention curricula for schools nationally. And her brand new consumer book titled Non-Toxic, Guide to Living Healthy in a Chemical World, released late summer 2020, And her TED Talk, How to Protect Your Kids from Toxic Chemicals, can be found on YouTube. I will make links to those available for our listeners. We spoke last time about environmental health. And this week, we are going to dive into the world of water. Welcome back, Dr. Cohen. Thank you so much for having me back again. I appreciate it. Well, there is just too much in your new book and on your website and in your TED Talk to limit our conversation to just one 30-minute interview. And I really want to take a deeper dive into some of the environmental health topics we touched on last week. We spoke about COVID-19 and how that relates to environmental toxins, how environmental toxins play a role in particular in our immune system. And now we also need to address the world of social justice as well and how environmental toxins affect some portions of the population more so than others. And of course, chronic inflammation is affected by environmental toxins, and that seems to be a predictor of all kinds of health issues. So welcome back, and we're going to dive into water this week. Yes, I think water has become, out of all of the many, many topics that get my blood boiling. I think water has actually risen to the top as the most blood boiling of topics. But as with all the topics I like to cover and feel comfortable covering, I always like to come up with a solution. I want to make sure that people who listen to me on podcasts or get some of my posts on The Smart Human on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, I always want to leave people with a solution. And I think that's how we wrap our head around tough topics by knowing that there's a practical practical ideas, recommendations, and things that anyone can actually take advantage of in order to lower exposures or to become healthier. I agree. And I always like to include in Food Sleuth Radio a charge or action steps for our listeners that they can leave with some news they can use to lead healthier, higher quality lives. So we are on the same page I remember the day, Dr. Cohen, when I was sitting in my nutrition lecture class 
and I learned that water was the most important nutrient, one that we take for granted. We turn on the tap. We just assume that someone is taking care of its cleanliness and purity, and yet we have seen some rollbacks in legislation that would protect our water. And I wonder if you could just start out by telling us, what is it about water that you find to be so critical in your work as a physician? Yeah, I think in terms of the full story, I like to start off when I teach high school students and college students, for instance, that there's a story about water. The first part of the story is, well, why do we need it? Why should we care? I mean, why should anyone really care how clean our water is? I mean, isn't the tap good enough or bottled water just good enough? So I like to start by saying, you know, listen, our bodies are made of water. On average, a woman's body, adult, is 50 to 60 percent water, and men are about up to 65 percent water. So water runs through our bodies, and believe it or not, the pH, the acidity, is very even similar to salt water. So it's almost like we came from the ocean, and we basically maintained this water content in our systems. And it's highly critical that we get water correct, because Water is important for moistening the air we breathe in. It carries nutrients to all of the cells of our body. It regulates our pH, our acidity, our alkalinity. It regulates body temperature through sweating, of course. And it protects and cushions our vital organs and joints. And it removes toxins, of course, through the bladder and kidney system. So, you know, we really need to get water correct because it's, it's so vital to almost every physiologic process in the human body. And in addition, we just consume so much of it. Per body mass index, we consume more water than we do even food. I mean, we cannot live without water beyond three days, more or less, as compared to food, which we can live without for even a few weeks. So we just need to get it right because of just the sheer amount of water we use daily, the importance of it physiologically, and because it's just so easy to fix in terms of the safety of it after we get through this conversation. Mm. And we should just let our listeners know that in case they're wondering why women have less percentage of body water than men, it's because we have more fat and men have more muscle. Uh, so just a little... That would be correct. <laughs> yeah. Right. The struggle is real, so... Well, that's what makes us so soft and voluptuous, so that's okay. Exactly. But I do want to mention that one of the surprises I took away from your book about water, I did not realize that 80% of U.S. drinking water comes from surface sources, meaning lakes and rivers and streams, the water that we can actually see. And so I was surprised and a little bit alarmed because I know what runs off into a lot of our surface water. Talk to me about that. So the big picture is, as citizens of the U.S., we get water from either public water systems, which are treatment plants. We have 160,000 of those nationally. And then we also get water to about 20 to 40 million residents. The rest is municipal, but 20 to 40 million residents get water through private wells. And they both have their own issues. But let me start with the municipal tap water. So these treatment plants, these 160,000 public water treatment plants, serve about 80 to 86% of the U.S. population. So most of us get a water bill and they we get it pumped in through piping, PVC piping actually, from the nearest water treatment plant. And the water that goes into municipal treatment plants, as you mentioned, 80% of that water that flows in to get cleaned comes from surface sources, 
which is lakes, streams, and different areas of water on top of the land. 20% comes from groundwater flow, so aquifers and groundwater wells that go into the public water supply. The idea is that whatever gets in those bodies of water that go into the treatment plants potentially become our drinking water and may likely have contaminants that are not washed off in the water treatment plant. So, for instance, in 1974, we had the Safe Drinking Water Act. And the Safe Drinking Water Act basically said across the country, the U.S. EPA will monitor 91 chemicals throughout the country at all of these treatment plants. So 91 chemicals, which anyone can look up, believe it or not, on the Internet. You can actually look up Safe Drinking Water Act of 1974, and that's where we have these standards set for the highest amount of that particular contaminant of the 91 that we can reach at a treatment plant before it's remediated, okay? The problem with 91 is the number is that there are over 90,000 chemicals that are actually now commercially available all over between products and runoff and air pollution that end up potentially in our surface bodies of water that will become our drinking water and are not monitored or regulated at these treatment plants. Mm. So again, you have only 91 that are being watched for, regulated, and calculated on a somewhat regular basis, depending on whether it's rural or more of a city environment. And the rest of these 89,910 chemicals potentially get into our water and are not monitored, regulated. And so we have a real problem because that means that that water will end up in our cups having traveled through PVC piping, if it's not lead piping, into our glasses. And so that's why I want people to be very aware of what can actually get into our water. Mm. And when you talk about the 91 chemicals that are treated or looked at at these processing facilities or treatment facilities, are any of those chemicals medications? So here's what is monitored, okay? Microorganisms, so certain types of bacteria, viruses, and fungi. Disinfectants actually are allowable in our drinking water because that's how they treat the water in order to take down the risk of infection through microorganisms. They use detergents that are allowable to go right out into our drinking water. We also have plasticizers, chemicals that some of those are monitored, some radionucleotides like radon, which naturally comes from the ground, and uranium. There are some pesticides like arsenic that is monitored. Some heavy metals such as lead, copper, and mercury is generally monitored. So if you look at this 91 list, you'll see the vast majority of all the other chemicals are not monitored. And when it comes to chemicals, medications are certainly chemicals. We urinate, believe it or not, into the toilet, you know, like blood pressure medications, antidepressants, oral contraceptives, and those are not removed during the treatment process, along with a bunch of other unsavory-type chemicals, such as fracking chemicals, such as coal ash, which is just the remnants of coal burning in this country. We have fertilizers that are not managed or monitored, pesticides that are not managed or monitored in terms of maximum contaminant levels at treatment plants. And then we have things like fluoride that are part of our water system and intentionally added. And so there's a wide variety of chemicals that will get into our water at different aspects of the process. 
my recommendation, which is really the key point to everything I talk about when it comes to water, is that we can do something about this water. We want to actually manage it in our homes or our workplaces with filtration. And there are many types of filters. Many people have pitcher filters. Some people have faucet filters, maybe on their refrigerator door filters. Those are typically carbon block filters, and they do a very decent job of removing a certain percentage of many harmful chemicals, including lead. But in order to get even more aggressive, you can work your way up through a list. My recommendation ends up being reverse osmosis or RO filter or filtration. And an RO filter is actually not cost prohibitive anymore. I think people think of filtration like an RO filter having to cost many thousands of dollars, which it can if you're putting in a whole house filter. However, you can buy consumer reports rated, highly vetted, made in America, you know, 100% of the parts are made in the U.S., RO filters that are accessible, and they cost in the range of 200 to $300 that you put in under your kitchen sink. Hmm. I remember interviewing an endocrinologist probably within the last 10 years, and it was based on his interview that I invested in a multi-stage carbon filter underneath the sink. I had considered the RO filter, but I was concerned about the increased use of water with that kind of filtration system. But your recommendation of the RO system makes me think maybe I made a mistake. That's a very good question, and especially when I was out in California and I was talking to a group of physicians and someone raised their hand and asked me just that. They said, in California, we have water restrictions. And our bills go very high if we use too much water, and how does that play into RO filters? And what took me off guard, and I actually researched it a bit, RO filters, what they do is they have essentially three canisters, which is the water comes in one end that a plumber can set up in an hour, by the way. That's not a hard process to set up. So the water comes in, goes through these three very large surface area canisters that are in these. So it has to go through very slowly through one, two, three, and then it drips, drips, drips into a tank that comes with the filter. And the reason it needs a tank is because to clean water that thoroughly and to go through it that much in terms of removing waste products and contaminants, it needs to go slowly, and therefore it can't come spitting right out of the sink faucet. And on average, for every one gallon of clean reverse osmosis filtered water, there tends to be a loss of about anywhere from three to five gallons of wasted water as it's cleaning that water. Now, the way I look at it, if you're using RO filtered water strictly for just cooking and filling up your water bottle for drinking or your glass for drinking, you're really not going to use a lot of that water. Mm-hmm. You're really going to be pretty conservative about it. And so, therefore, you're not going to waste a lot of water. Right. And so the answer to that is I find it's well worth having clean, clean water, not buying bottled water with chemicals that are in plastics, which you save money on right away, I'm not contributing to environmental trash with plastics, and using it in a conservative way where you wash your dishes with the regular municipal water that's unfiltered, but you strictly use that RO filter water for cooking and drinking. And in that regard, I believe that there's no question that it's, it's well worth it.
Mm -hmm. That's really good to know. Let me take one break and just remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined today by Dr. Ailey Cohen, board-certified rheumatologist, integrative medicine, and environmental health expert, author of a brand new book, Non-Toxic, Guide to Living Healthy in a Chemical World. Her TED Talk, How to Protect Your Kids from Toxic Chemicals, is fantastic as well. And she has a website, thesmarthuman.com, with this kind of information and more. Now, I'm thinking about social justice and environmental justice, and yet one more example of how the everyday citizen has to bear these externalized costs of our industrialized systems because we have to ultimately buy the filters, Wouldn't it be better if we required industry not to be polluting and that we wouldn't have to bear these costs, but indeed we do. So just a little side note there. The other issue is that some of the filter systems really are not affordable or even available, say, to a low-income citizen or someone who is renting. And do individuals who rent properties, you know, I'm assuming there's no requirement for them to do anything with regard to filtering water for their tenants. The systemic issues in terms of inequality in regards to environmental justice run very deep. And I don't think we have the time to necessarily go through all of those nuances. And I'm not certainly an expert in all of that. But I will say that if we could get at the industrial system and talk about water restrictions and water rollbacks in terms of legislation that have been occurring, I'm horrified by that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a non-political statement because no matter who would pass these kind of rollbacks, I'd still be horrified whether it's Democrat or Republican. So I think we need to think beyond partisan politics and think more human health, which affect all of us since we're all human. I would say that when it comes to the lowest low-income homes and environments, It's a really tricky situation. Often there is downstream pollution from neighborhood contamination, be it local to manufacturing, air quality and air pollution issues, and poor people can't necessarily pick up and move. And so then they're really left to what the public health services are deeming healthy for them and their children which doesn't always ring true with the research bodies nationally in terms of, for instance, lead. There's a cap on the amount of lead that is considered safe, and most health practitioners across the board internationally would argue there's no safe level of lead to be ingested, be it through paint chips that are from old homes that haven't been remediated or from water systems where the infrastructure has not been updated like in Flint, Michigan, but also in New Jersey, where I live, in Newark, and places across the country where lead is an active issue in drinking water, not just in homes, but even in schools, Mm. which are actually not required to test for lead in the majority of the states in this country. So, you know, there's a lot of upstream. Yes, that's a a very shocking, shocking information, and that's based on the fact that people aren't living in schools, and so it's based on the fact that it's how much use is is the water system is used by the actual people in schools as opposed to in your home because it's not considered an active area of intake or ingestion. So there are no laws mandating regular testing of lead in school systems. Some states are much more aggressive than others and should be applauded, but for the most part, it's not something that's that's high on the list. 
So I think what we want to think about is what I say to anyone of any socioeconomic means um, or education background, which is we really need to do this for ourselves. If we wait for other people, for governments to move, which we all know is administrative bureaucracy, lobbying, and industry pushbacks, we really will be waiting forever. And in the meantime, we'll get sicker. Mm. So my whole premise of the smart human and everything I like to do is to say, listen, we've got to do this for ourselves. All we need to know is some very basic information, simple information, and then we can do this at a reasonable cost. Now, an RO filter, yes, 200 to $300 is expensive for many, many low economic, you know, poor homes, poor communities. I get that. However, when communities like Newark are pressed to go out and get bottled water to feed their children and their family because they may not be getting enough of it due to their the health system. You know, if they're not supplying bottled water when they're told they have too much lead in their drinking water in the pipes, then you can see already that expenses are going to be made for these families on their own often. And so when you put in a system it can often pay itself back very quickly, especially if you're in a situation where you're forced to go out and get your own bottled water and right. pay for it. Right. But I think even if you went to a carbon filter or something that was less costly, I think any filtration is worth something. Right. There are oftentimes, I tell patients and students, listen, if you're not living in an apartment, you're a student, you might be in college, you might have different apartments throughout your life, you can also get pitchers that are carbon filters. And you can even fill up your pitcher from your refrigerator's carbon filter. So now you've double filtered. So there's all these kind of tricky ways to do it. You could buy water and glass, which is not easy to find, but plastic bottles are definitely not, in my opinion, considered that much safer other than if you're in a contaminated situation and you need to do that um, yeah. as an emergency situation. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I always have to laugh sort of when I see some of those filter pitcher products, because the pitchers are invariably made of plastic. I'm assuming it's a polycarbonate plastic. And I think, is there any way we could just put that filter over a glass pitcher? It would be so much better. Yeah, well, RO filters are made with plastic. So there's a hypocrisy there as well. The plastic, however, it tends to not be heated or change in temperature. It tends to not have bisphenol A or it's substitutes like BPA, BPS, BPSIP as substitutions. So they generally are thinking along the lines of less contaminated plastics for these products. But there are some parts that cannot be changed into glass or metal. And so these are things we have to contend with. Pitchers generally do not get heated up. They remain in your fridge. Sure. Um, So, you know, with all within reason, we can't go nuts. But the idea is that the majority of good you can do just by even doing the bare minimum of filtration is, is definitely worth it. And maintaining those filters, in other words, changing up when they're due. I mean, that's really the tough part, is remembering or having an alarm set or something on the picture that actually will tell you when you're due to change the filter out. Yeah, good thought. We should talk about bottled water because that seems to be the route. I know the population in Flint, Michigan, that had been affected with the high lead levels They, of course, were given bottled water for a time. Many communities that fear that their water is contaminated do reach for plastic bottles. 
many people are lured into buying those firm plastic bottles that are reusable, but they say that they are BPA free, which you touched on that the replacement compounds are not necessarily safer. And then we have the metal bottles that we can refill. I'm assuming that you are a fan of the metal or glass bottle. Yeah, I am. And as we both talked about, BPA is kind of a whack-a-mole situation. BPA is an endocrine-disrupting chemical. It was it's sort of the poster child for a bunch of different classes of endocrine-disrupting chemicals that we now know exist and affect different hormonal components of the body, be it fertility, be it growth and development, insulin and diabetes risk, cancers that are endocrine cancers or hormone sensitive like breast, prostate, testicular, uterine cancers. And so BPA has really made it into the forefront of our media when it was taken out of baby bottles in 2010, formally in 2012. However, BPA is often marketed as, you know, products are marketed as BPA-free, and which makes everyone excited when you see that. <laughs> but what's happened is the industry really created a whole host of other, what we call regrettable substitutions to BPA, called BPS, BPSIP, BPFB. Again, very similar in terms of its molecular structure, and we now know, after several years of having these other substitutions out on the market and testing, that they are often the same risks in terms of endocrine disruption and, and, of course, immune system inflammation, as is BPA. So the best way to not be exposed at all to even the regrettable substitution is really to go glass stainless steel whenever possible, don't cook meals in plastics, don't heat up meals in plastics, and try not to even store food or drinks in plastics. Or canned foods, for instance, all have a BPA lining, plastic lining in almost every canned food or drink you can imagine. So we're really infiltrated in our lives with these chemicals, but there are reasonable ways to get around them. And for instance, with canned foods, we can buy frozen organics or frozen produce and and vegetables. And that's how we can get away from doing canned foods all the time, you Mm -hmm. know, and taking those into our lives. All right, Dr. Cohen, we've got one minute. I want you to give us a final message about water that you want our listeners to know. Okay. Well, I believe water is probably the most important thing, the system of getting water into our bodies and our families' bodies. I think it's it's really a priority. And no one thinks about it, which why should you, right? You go to a restaurant, people put water on your table, you drink it, you don't question it, you don't know where it came from. I think we need to be more cognizant of where our water comes from. And I think we can think about putting in a system, a one-time system that we can take care of that will pay itself off and is aggressive. When I change my filter out, it's pretty nasty looking. So I just want people to consider any level of filtration, be it a pitcher, a faucet, a refrigerator door, all the way through to reverse osmosis, and explore that because there are so many practical, reasonable options out there. And certainly carrying water, not in plastic, but in a glass or stainless steel bottle, or even now bottles that come with carbon filters that are in the the bottle that you can travel with, which is remarkable. So there's a lot of creative stuff up there, but please try to consider it because that's really important for our whole lives moving forward as well. This is so important. Thank you so much. We need to close. And of course, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. 
I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Ailey Cohen, board-certified rheumatologist, integrative medicine, and environmental health expert based in Princeton, New Jersey. She has been working on a fantastic book titled Non-Toxic Guide to Living Healthy in a Chemical World, recently released. Her TED Talk, How to Protect Your Kids from Toxic Chemicals, is on YouTube. I'll provide a link. And of course, thesmarthuman.com, where you can find more information still. Thank you so much, Dr. Cohen, for all of your important work. Thank you so much for having me. What a great platform for all of this good work. Thank you. Thank you.